just as the, uh, just as the offering goes around, um, just a few bits and pieces I wanted to, to share with you before we dive into 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our, our 11 to 14s are going out, so uh, if you're in that age group, then uh, do follow them down the corridor there and they'll be out during the preach. Just the first thing um, I wanted to, to mention was a couple of weeks ago um, we shared with you something um, about Reflect. Reflect is our, our pregnancy crisis ministry. It's uh, also, they offer post-abortion um, counselling. And over the last probably 10 years, there's been quite a small team, but a very dedicated team, making a difference in people's lives. And we've just felt a sense of God stirring us, um, that maybe it's the right time for us to expand that ministry, for us to have a wider impact, a broader impact on Hastings, and the surrounding towns and villages. So we're looking to put together um, some training that will provide um, people with a good background and an opportunity for them to minister in that way. And so if you are interested in finding more out about the Reflect training, please go to the information desk, which is over right, well, follow my hand right the way down through there. You'll find the information desk. Put your name down there and either Sheila or Sue can get in contact with you and just share a little bit more about what's involved and why it's so important. As many of you will know, we're planning to do some building work um, in the next, uh, which is due to commence in the next couple of months. Just want to update you a little bit on that. We've had the contractors' prices back in. We had them in about six weeks ago. And uh, it's great to be able to tell you that the two lowest ones came in well under budget, which is very much uh, according to the grace of God, we believe. Um, And with that in mind, we're able to do everything that I described in the January uh, vision talk. So if you didn't hear that and you're not quite certain what's going on, what's happening, if you go onto our website, look under preaches, look for vision preach in January, you will get an update of what it is we're looking to achieve this year with particular reference to the building. But the things we will be doing is the multi-purpose room, we're looking to move the entrance, put a lot of windows and doors in on that far corner, we're looking to install a coffee shop, Um, We're changing the alpha room round, we're putting some new offices in at the first floor and making some adjustments to the main auditorium. I will now breathe. An area for prayer, though, is the bank loan. We've been given a conditional offer by a high street bank um, which is subject to valuation. So we're expecting in the next few weeks that evaluation will be done on the building. Assuming all that goes well, it's pretty much green lights all the way as far as the uh, lending goes. Um, Although uh, we are also talking to two other banks, um, but we're not quite so far down the line with that scheme. It's looking like the scheme's going to cost somewhere between £800,000 and £850,000. So that's slightly less than we were expecting. And as I said last time, if you say it quickly, it doesn't sound so much. With that in mind, we're going to need to borrow somewhere around half a million pounds, about 500,000. But that will include the 130,000 that we owe on the car park, so that will be subsumed into the half a million. As far as timing goes, um, we hope that we would be starting sometime in March. We won't be starting in March. Um, As soon as the bank loan is in place, the contractor can receive an order. They then need about four weeks to mobilise. So we're probably looking at the first week of May at the earliest. Please pray the bank loan comes through quickly and we can sort these things out. 
There's no reason why it shouldn't, but it's, a good, it's good to pray for it anyway. The first phase, which is everything in Hall 2, is going to take about six months to complete. So if you sort of think Hall 2, everything taking place, that's going to take about six months, including the externals, the patio, the fencing, the new entrance, all of that will be about six months. And then we're going to need an additional three months to do things like the kitchen, change the alpha room around, put the offices in. And so it's, it's definitely going to be to the end of the year. It may even stretch a little bit into 2013. It's odd to talk about that, doesn't it? Already talking about going into 2013. Sundays are going to carry on as normal, other than a little bit of dust and a bit of disruption. If you've got any questions about the building work, please go chat to Kevin. Um, he will do his best to answer, or Robin. So, or, if you want, you can just let the information desk know and we can get in contact with you and answer any questions you may have. The other bit of news I just wanted to share with you is that I'm planning to take a bit of a mini sabbatical um, in the near future. Just after discussions with Don, um, Dave Holden and the core team, and most of you will know who Don is and, and, and Dave, um, we felt that it would be good for me to have a bit of a break. And so I'm planning to have a break during May and the first two weeks of June to recuperate and have a bit of a break um, following fairly busy church life and uh, quite a lot going on personally, which many of you will know about. In my absence, Santino's going to be leading the team and he's going to do an excellent job, isn't he? I think they're a bit uncertain about you, Sam. <laughs> Don and Graham, Graham from Eastbourne, are close at hand, and so they're going to be looking to step in and support Santino as and when necessary, which I doubt will be that often. We've also been developing, as you know, the core team, so they're going to be standing very close, and we've also got the pastoral deacons, who are excellent men and women, um, carrying a lot of the pastoral weight in the church anyway. During that time we're going to bring in some external preachers, so we've, we've been struggling to get the standard to a high enough level, um, but we're going to have people like John Groves coming in and, um, you know, sorry about that guys, but you've got to put up with a bad one every now and again. And um, we're also hoping that we're going to have Neil Anderson with us from the States. Um, he's linked with the whole Freedom in Christ stuff, so that's a real privilege. He's over doing a conference in Eastbourne. And they can't use him on a Sunday, so we're going to use him on a Sunday. So, um, so that'd be excellent. And we, we're just seeing what else we're going to do. Probably the only thing that I will have um, any weekly connection with is the building work. So if the building work starts in May, um, I'll be having a weekly meeting with Kevin and generally giving builders, architects, that sort of thing, uh, a due amount of grief, along with Kevin. And we're quite good at that together. We're quite a team when it comes to that. Let's continue our preach series in Timothy. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into it. Ah, Lord, we, we do love to worship you. Thank you for your presence with us. Lord, we, we're hungry for you with us in the next bit of the meeting as well. I pray, please, will you uh, give me wisdom on the things to include, what to miss out. But I pray, Lord, it will come with Holy Spirit anointing. 
I pray for the fire of your presence to come and make it live. Lord, it would be awful if it was just an information period, an information time. Lord, I pray you would take your word and set it on fire and that it will live and burn in our hearts, that it will burn up sin, it will stir and challenge us, Lord God, it will draw us after you, that we leave here more passionate and zealous for you than when we came in. God forbid that we should ever settle for Sunday mornings where we walk out the same as we've walked in. Lord, we are passionate to meet with you and have our lives transformed. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're continuing our preach series in Timothy. This letter was written to the church at Ephesus by Paul to the guy who was leading the church, which is Timothy. And the overall theme of the letter is that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who've received it. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, You will not stay the same. You cannot stay the same because the gospel will have effect. In 1 Peter it talks about it being the imperishable seed that is planted into our hearts and it may not grow big immediately but it will slowly grow and grow and grow having a bigger and bigger impact on your life growing to the point where everything else has to leave because there isn't room for two things. That's the gospel and it's wonderful bringing peace and joy and security and transformation to every life where it has had an impact. We're going to pick up in chapter 2 where Paul starts to list out, well, what are those practical changes? What are those visible changes that we should expect to see on the back of the Gospel? What things should we see as a result of Gospel fruit. Now the plan is, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to read some of the verses, then explain them, then read a few more. So to start with, we're going to be looking at the first six or seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. But then I want to take a bit of a side shift. I want to shift out, because of something that caught my attention in in my preparation time, and we're going to look at governments and those in authority and how we should relate with them. What should be our attitude towards those that govern over us? How should we respond, maybe when they do things that we don't like? Increase our taxes. Reduce our pensions. How should we respond when those sorts of things happen? Because the Gospel has changed in every aspect of our lives. So let's read the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So Liz, just so you can keep up, the first bit is the whole passage. You need to dive through that into the next bit. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's interesting to note that the first gospel fruit that Paul talks about when he's writing to the church in Ephesus is prayer and worship. The first gospel fruit 
is prayer and worship. It's not mission. It's not preaching. It's not fellowship. It's not outreach. First of all, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. This word urge isn't a passive word, it has a sense of action and energy about it. Church at Ephesus, what's the first gospel fruit that he wanted to see? It's a church that worships Jesus. It's a church that connects with Jesus in prayer. First of all, Do you love to worship Jesus? Do you? Do you worship him on your own? Yeah. Do you have times where, if you haven't got a lovely voice like me, you know, you, you can't sing unaccompanied, but do you have times where you put the CD on and you lift your hands and you just say, Jesus, I love you. Our first call is to worship him. Do you have times where you connect with him in prayer? Well, you know what it is? You do business with Jesus. Oh, God, would you move in this situation? Oh, God, would you intervene here? It's the very essence of who we are. Take worship and prayer out. You've just got a form. You've got, you've got an outward sign. You've got no substance. Worship and prayer is at the very heart of who we are. And it's wonderful when we gather to worship together like this and we connect with God. But really, that is just the corporate outworking of what we all do during the week on our own. Church, do you worship and pray? Don't, don't allow it. Don't allow it just to be a once-a-week activity you do. When Janair and Becky lead us so well, don't allow it just to be that once a week. Connect him with him. You can worship in the car. You can worship him first thing in the morning. You can worship him at night. You can worship him and no one else even knows you're doing it. But first of all, let me urge you, do not be passive when it comes to worship and prayer, but throw yourself in because he is worthy. He is worthy to be praised and worshipped. In Revelation 2 verse 4, when John is writing about the church at Ephesus, this is what it says. It says, you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken... Maybe there were hints of it. When Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus now to Timothy, he says, come on, make sure they're a praying church. Make sure they're connecting with God in prayer. Make sure they haven't forsaken their first love. Guys, you haven't forsaken your first love, have you? You haven't forsaken him. Sing like never before. Oh my soul. I worship his holy name. He's worthy to be praised. Paul then goes on to list the different types of prayer. 
requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. Calvin said this, I do not completely understand the difference between them. So if Calvin said that, I won't try and spend too long explaining what all the different words mean. But I think requests, do do you request things of God? Do you make specific requests of God? Oh God, would you do this? Do you know what it is to intercede, to pray with great boldness and confidence, pushing right into his throne room? Do you you cover everything with thanksgiving? Because there's nothing that guards the heart more than a thankful one. If you want to guard your heart, make sure you don't become a bit bitter and twisted. If you're full of thanksgiving, that guards your heart. I think what Paul really wants to emphasise to Timothy is that we pray in lots of different ways and we pray for lots of different people. That's the result of it. He's adding urgency to what he's saying. Prayers, requests, intercession, thanksgiving, doesn't really matter whether they're short prayers or long prayers, whether they're done on your own or done corporately, but make sure that you pray. Because it's the very first thing that we need to get right in our Christian life. Let prayers be made for everyone. For kings and for all those in authority. And as I was reading this and reading commentaries on this, I must admit it provoked me that our prayers shouldn't be small. They shouldn't just be wrapped about around ourselves. They shouldn't just be wrapped around maybe what we're doing as a church, but they should be broad. They should be big. They should be faith-filled. Because when we pray here in Hastings, we can change what goes on for Nigel and Claire in Berlin. It seems ridiculous to say it, but it's true. When we pray here in Hastings, we can pray, change things that are happening for Paul and Helen Dorcott in Montpellier, in the south of France. We have the opportunity to change things, not just a little shift, but change things with eternal consequences. We can be praying that people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour in Berlin and because we've prayed, because we've laid hold of God, because we've said, God, will you do it? God moves and brings about change and transformation. And so it's so important that we're broad and we're big in our prayers. Something that reflects who God is, who isn't a small God. He's not just the God of Hastings or the God of King's Church, or the God of my community group, or the God of my family. He's the God of the nations, who has no beginning and no end. And we need to let that truth be reflected in how we pray. Connecting with him, asking big things, because he is eternal. He is over all things. He's not a small God. Spurgeon said this. I I think this this is a lovely, lovely quote. It's a lovely, lovely quote. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. Prayer is like the slender nerve that moves the Almighty. If you imagine, uh, this isn't a very good illustration because my muscles aren't much bigger than my nerves, but... (laughs) But assuming I was better built, although... Very strong, well hidden. I haven't got a clue what I'm on about now. It's nerves. Yeah, that's it. The smallest, slenderest nerve 
that can be tweaked or broken can move the greatest of muscles in your body. And it's the same with God. The most basic, the most needy, the most interdispersed, unarticulate prayer can move the Almighty to act on your behalf in ways far greater and bigger than all of us put together could achieve with our human effort. That's what prayer does. That's why we pray. And the other Spurgeon quote, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. God's arm can do exactly what he pleases, but our prayers impact on God himself. Who's in charge? God's in charge. And we have a direct line to talk with him. But we also see from 1 Timothy that God has delegated his authority as well. And we're told to specifically pray for those in authority, for the government, for those in opposition, for good, just and righteous laws, for the police and the justice system, for the local council. And the goal of these prayers, and we're going to come back and look at this in a little bit more detail in a moment, but the reason is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, peace and order are a reflection of the heart of God. Disorder, panic, rioting are from the enemy. Satan came to kill, destroy and lie. God brings peace and order. Both, both in a big picture but also at a government level and that is part of the reason why God has given governments and authority in society. And we are to live in all godliness and holiness. That word godliness talks about worship, godly devotion, being living sacrifices. Holiness talks about a moral earnestness. I'm turning away from things that I know displease God because I'm following him. And this whole context here is that we better live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why? That the gospel might advance. That people might be saved. That people may come to a knowledge of the truth. But it's interesting to see here that Paul doesn't just pray for those in authority. He has a much more radical view than that. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 13, because I just want to spend just a bit of time with this before we come back and we we wrap it all together at the end. Because to be honest, I've been very provoked by this. Paul doesn't just think we should pray for those in authority, he goes much further. And in Romans 13, he has a much more radical outlook. How should the church in Ephesus interact with an unjust, persecuting Roman government. And obviously for us, we don't have a government like the Roman Empire, we have one that is much more just than that, much more benevolent than that, I think that's the right word, it's a a better government than that, but it has lessons for us today. So, Romans chapter 13. Everyone 
must submit himself to the governing authorities. So there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Both the Jewish and the Roman authorities were largely hostile and unfriendly to the church. John Stott says this about the... uh, Well, he says this. The reigning emperor was Nero, whose vanity, cruelty and hostility to the Christian faith were widely known. And this makes the teaching here in Romans chapter 13 even more provoking. You see, it wasn't a good Christian government. This wasn't someone who was predisposed to do good to the Christians of that time, but what Paul says, and we're going to briefly look at what Jesus said, it makes it all the more provoking on how we should live in our time. The first thing I've noticed here is we need to submit ourselves to governing authorities. We need to obey them. So those who are governing, I guess that would be uh, David Cameron and the government, we need to obey what they say. We need to obey those who are in authority over us and the reason that he's given for that is because they have been placed there by God. God has put them there. If we rebel against governing authorities, you're rebelling against God himself. So if you knowingly and willingly break the law, that's what you're doing. You are to, to rebel is to set oneself up against. Paul calls for submission and he warns against rebellion. In verse 4 we see that governing authorities are God's servants. Now he's not saying that they're perfect... He's not saying that they uh, don't make mistakes, but he is saying they've been put there by God and they are God's servants. Even Jesus, just a few hours before he was crucified, he said to Pilate, you only have authority because my Father has given you authority. So Jesus even understood that before Pilate was about to pronounce guilty and send him to be crucified. But Jesus realised that the reason Pilate was there is because God had placed him there. Now, it wasn't everything that Pilate did was just and fair and right, but he'd been placed there by God. So therefore, when we disobey or we rebel against uh, governments or authorities, we need to know we're rebelling against the one God has put in place. 
We need to submit for two reasons. The first reason is you'll get punished if you get caught. Paul's very matter-of-fact about it. And as Christians, if you've done something you shouldn't have done and you get caught for it, you should then not complain because you were caught. The Bible is clear, you shouldn't have done it. And if you have been caught, that's fair and that's right and that's just. But he goes further than that. He says the second reason that we mustn't break the law is because our very conscience tells us that it is wrong. God has given us our conscience that's influenced by the Holy Spirit, it's calibrated by the Word of God that tells us actually we need to keep in line with the laws of the land. That's how it should work. Now you might be thinking here, look, Paul, yeah, I know all of that stuff. What relevance does it have to be? I'm a good law-abiding citizen. Probably true. But I want to go a little bit further than that. In verse 7 it says this. This... In verse 7 it says this, and it says this, remember, in the connection with government and those in authority. Give to everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. And as those that are following Jesus Christ, we need to be the first to show respect and honour for those in authority above us. We should look different to everyone else in society in how we talk about, how we treat, how we communicate about those in authority over us. We're living in a society that mocks, that tears down and that is riddled with sarcasm. The most popular comedy shows are those that pretty much rip things apart, rip those in authority apart. And I found it so provoking preparing this because I realised I'm no different from anyone else. I watch it, I laugh at it. Isn't it funny? And I'm not saying all humour like that is wrong, but it should stir us because we are those who respect and honour those in authority. One of the most, some of the most provoking people I have met are church leaders from Zimbabwe. When I hear them speak about their nation, their country and their government, I am put to shame. I have never heard them in the last two years say anything bad about Mugabe, about the regime. Do they agree with it? I'm pretty certain they don't. I bet they're horrified at some of the things that take place. But they have within them a culture of honour and respect and are so careful that they do not tear down and destroy, but they build up. They are giants of the faith when it comes to this. And if I can say with boldness, we are infants. We have so much to learn from them. Because we have a government, and by the way, please hear me, this isn't party political at all. But we have a government and we live in a nation which is much, much better in so many ways. And yet the way we speak as Christians about those in authority at times is horrendous and atrocious. That doesn't line up with the Word of God. That's not how the Bible says we're to be. 
In Romans 12 it says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What we're doing this morning, I'm renewing your mind. Well, at least I'm provoking it anyway. The renewing part needs these down to you really, in connection with the Holy Spirit. Everyone must submit himself to governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. If the goal of our prayers is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, our decisions and our lifestyle should also keep in step with that. And we need to be praying for our government even when they increase our taxes and they reduce our pensions. We should be thanking God for them because he put them there. You may not like it, it may hurt and be painful, but how we talk about them should be with honour and respect. This isn't a political party statement. It wouldn't matter if the government was blue, orange or red. That's not the point. The point is God has put them there at this time. He may change it in the next election, but at the moment they're there. So, as Christians, how do we work that out? We need to pray that they will make wise decisions and that the poorest and the neediest in our society are protected at this time. So if you're thinking, well, how do I pray at this point? We need to pray that the poorest and neediest are protected. I think that would be a clear mandate in the Bible. That's how we should be praying. Even if it costs you personally. So it might be that your pensions are going down, but the poorest and the neediest are protected. That might be a pill that we've got to swallow. And I know all of us are suffering in one way or another at this time. But my understanding of the situation is, I'm sure this this is right, is that there isn't enough money to go round and so cuts have to be made. So we need to pray, oh God, would the poorest and the neediest be protected at this time. Jesus was even more provocative than this. In Sermon on the Mount, he spoke, and do, do any of you remember this whole little thing? He says, look, if someone asks you to go one mile with them, go two miles. You know that one? There was a Roman law that was in place at that time. Any occupying soldier could stop any Jewish male, whatever he was doing, and say, take my equipment pack and walk for a mile in this direction. They didn't need to give warning, they didn't need to book it into your iCal diary, they didn't need to do anything like that, they could just come and grab you and say, carry my equipment pack. You could have just got to your destination, they could say, no, my equipment pack needs to go a mile down the road that way, pick it up and you take it. What did Jesus say in response to that? He said, take it two miles. He didn't say, sit down. I'm going to object peacefully. And when you beat me and when you kick me, I'm still not going to carry your equipment back. Actually, he didn't say that at all, did he? He actually said, no, pick it up and actually say to him, do you want me to carry it two miles? I'll carry it two miles for you. When Jesus was questioned about paying taxes to the Roman Empire, of which a lot of the tax money that they would have paid would have gone to unjust things. Conquest and occupation, even though paying taxes to keep them occupied, keep themselves occupied. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He didn't say don't pay it.
Are there ever times when we disagree with what the government is doing? You know, when there are times when we disagree with what the government is doing, what should we do? And there are times in the Bible when godly people have disobeyed the government. However, the only times we are sanctioned to disobey the government is when it is the only way to obey God. So in Acts 5.29, they were preaching about Jesus. The Jewish authorities said, stop preaching about Jesus. Their response was, we must obey God rather than men. In Hebrews 11.23, it talks about the time when Moses was born and the midwives were instructed by Pharaoh to take all the male children and to throw them into the Nile. The midwives disobeyed Pharaoh because they trusted and they feared God. It was right for them to do that. There are other instances with Daniel praying and they said you must only worship um, Nebuchadnezzar or whoever the king was at the time and you mustn't pray to any other god. Daniel knew that would be wrong. I'm going to obey God first. Got himself in a whole heap of trouble. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were the same being thrown into the fiery furnace. Why? Because they were obeying God. And so there is a mandate where there is the injustice and unrighteousness for us to stand up in the right times and in the right ways to make a statement and say this is wrong but the context predominantly that I can see in the Bible is when we're being called to either disobey God or they're telling us we can't do something because it, 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 it contradicts clearly what the word of God is saying. John Stott says this, In each case, talking about the Bible, the purpose was to demonstrate their submissiveness to God, not their defiance of government. We're showing we are submissive to God, we're not just looking to be defiant to the the, the government. There are times and places when the church must stand up and fight for, and I don't necessarily mean physically, for righteousness, disadvantage, the poor and needy, for those without help but it needs to be done with underlying values of respect and honour, peaceful and submissive hearts and out of love. They are the things that shape how we do all things. Now I've touched on this before but I think this is where it gets grounded a little bit more. We live in a society that mocks authority and looks to undermine it nearly at every turn. Pretty much every form of media uses it as an easy way to entertain we should be thinking differently. We need to honour, support and speak well of those who govern us. In government, our teachers, so any youth that are still in, our teachers, our police force, our bosses at work, even your church leaders. You see, because it trickles down into every sphere of life. You see, if you are hoping that your children are going to respect you, but you are permanently moaning at what the government is doing every time you watch the news, you are grumbling about how the teachers are teaching your children, it isn't surprising if the role model you set is one of disrespect and lack of honour that your children turn around and say, well, I'm not going to respect you or honour you. I've got no role model, I've got no basis from which to look and say... Oh, that's what respect and honour looks like. It trickles right through society and we mustn't be a church that's just pick a mix. Some of you parents here, you will obey me. I'm sure none of you have ever said that. You will obey me, I'm, I'm due respect and honour, I'm your parent. 
And the next turn you're saying, those jolly teachers don't know what they're doing. God dear, if only the teachers would get it right. Call that police force. We need a bit of law and order around here. Teach those young ruffians a thing or two. It trickles down. It trickles down. One of the ways we're salt and light is to be different. And I know at this time it's really provocative. I'm not, I'm not talking as one who's got it all sorted, I've, I've arrived. Not at all. But I'm provoked this week in the preparation of my word thinking, oh God, I don't think I'm salt and light in how I speak, how I respect, how I honour. And it's across the board. Why? Because God has placed them there. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, to your parents, to your teachers, to your bosses at work. Even bad bosses, bad teachers, bad parents, because they've been placed there by God. That's a challenge, I know. Paul says that slaves are to obey their masters. You think, what? Even when they're not looking. We say, well, slavery is, is wrong. It is wrong. But, but Paul said, no, no. St- still obey your masters. It is provoking. The gospel is provoking. It affects every aspect of our lives. It will turn us inside out. It will not allow us to settle. That's the word of God. Teachers, those in the health profession, should you strike about your pensions? That's a challenging thing. Striking is a legal way to show that you don't disagree. So you're not breaking the law, you're not being rebellious in striking, but it's a good question to ask, why am I striking? Good to hold it up against the word of God. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I think it's a matter of conscience. I don't think there is a whole totally right or a whole totally wrong thing. I think it's a matter of conscience. And even if you do choose to strike, to do it in a way that speaks of respect and honour towards the government and those you're striking against. That's right. I know it's challenging. I know it's provoking. No one ever said following Jesus would be easy. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. And your personal desires, your personal feelings, you may have to crucify them. Because they're wrong. You may have to. Do you know what I mean? That's... that's all of us at any point in our lives. We're, we're not Lord of our own life anymore. I'm following Jesus. And the reason we're doing this is because there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. You see, as we live lives in step with the Holy Spirit, we bring glory to Jesus Christ and people say, Why are you acting like this? 
And you say, because I'm following Jesus. You may not say it quite like that, they may think you're a bit odd, but I'm sure you'll come up with better words. But it has an impact. It's a testimony. It is powerful in people's lives. And ultimately, the reason we are here is to see God glorified and people reached for Jesus Christ. Let's stand and we'll finish in prayer. Thank you, Lord. The gospel isn't about just about Sunday mornings, singing some nice songs, enjoying your presence, but I thank you the gospel comes and penetrates every aspect of our life. Lord, I ask you for a work of your Holy Spirit right now. Lord, where we're provoked, where we're challenged, where we're stirred, maybe where we've been confronted by your word and we think, oh, I really hadn't thought of it that way. I ask you, Holy Spirit, not for condemnation, but for your encouragement and your conviction. Lord, we want to keep in step with you as much on a Tuesday morning as we do on a Sunday morning. And so I ask for your grace and your power. Lord, I ask you, Lord, that you captivate our hearts afresh. You draw us after you in worship and prayer. Our first calling. Lord, we're so aware, Lord, that those we're praying for It's difficult to moan about. And I ask you, Lord, that we do an awful lot more praying and a lot less moaning. Fill us with your spirit, I pray. Give us strength and grace for today. Be with us this week in all we're doing. I pray for those in authority over us. Please, would you give them great wisdom as they make difficult decisions about millions of pounds touching hundreds of thousands of lives. Lord, would you give them such grace and wisdom in those decisions? I do pray, Lord, that the poorest and the neediest in our society will be protected and supported. Lord, I ask for grace, Lord, as we personally take cuts and things don't go quite as we like. I pray provide for us in other ways, Lord, I ask, where we're cut to the bone and maybe don't know how we're going to survive this week or this month. Oh, God, we look to you, the one who loves us and says you will provide for us. Oh, God, would you step in and help us there, we ask. Oh, Lord, we look to you, the God of all comfort who knows our weaknesses and stands with us in them. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to be praying this evening, so do come and join us as we pray this evening. The uh, serving fair is out there, so do go and have a look and see if you can engage in some way. Have an excellent week and we'll see you at some point in the week. Thanks very much.